Welcome to the Real Estate Podcast with Robert Eichert. Today I have one of the best guests I can possibly imagine, my friend, my mentor, and frankly, one of the people in the world I look up to the most. And it's the Honorable Rudy S. Apodaca. Thank you, Robert, for that. Yes, I've known him since I was born. He's been a family friend. And um, we're not gonna be pure real estate today. Um, we'll talk a little bit about real estate, but we have a lot more to talk about. And, I, and I'm so, uh, so privileged to have Judge Apodaca as my guest today. We're in Cedar Park, Texas. So this is Cedar Park, for those of you that don't know, it is, is in Texas, Central Texas, on the outskirts of Austin, Texas. Um, so we live in this lovely golf course community. He does. I'm visiting him. And so let me, let, let me tell you all a little bit about Judge Apodaca. First of all, thank you, Judge, for joining us today. Thank you, Robert, for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It's my, my pleasure. Um, um, Judge Apodaca is a lawyer and former jurist, having served on the New Mexico Court of Appeals. He was chief judge of the Court of Appeals in New Mexico, um, and they hear appellate cases. So there's a trial level, and if the people don't, one of the sides don't like the way the trial ended up, they appeal it, and they go to his court for hopefully for them whose ever side it is a different result than what the trial and a lot of times that has to do and i'll let the judge go into it more you, you might but, add you might add both criminal and civil cases civil and criminal and a lot of times they're not trying to necessarily um or at all trying to push a jury and the jury's verdict aside if it was a jury trial what they're trying to say is, did everything comply legally? Was everything, were all the ducks in a row legally on the rules of evidence, the law? And um, so um, so he, he took office as judge in 1987. He served in that position for almost 14 years. And he is presently performing mediation and arbitration services in Central Texas, officing in the Austin metropolitan area. He's licensed to practice law in Texas and New Mexico. And um, he is bilingual in English and Spanish. He was born in Las Cruces, New Mexico, as was I. <laughs> good, good, pla good place to start off. Yes, the best food ever also and beautiful views. Um, to Mexican-American parents, Raimundo Apodaca and Elisa Apodaca. He was raised a Catholic in New Mexico where he attended parochial and public schools and he graduated from Las Cruces High School. He has been married to Nancy Mitchum, uh, who's a native of Arkansas for 54 years. And together they have four grandchildren, I'm sorry, four children and eight grandchildren. And so he also served in the Army. Um, he did communication and electronics. He has a bio that is unbelievable, but we're, I'm just hitting some highlights here. But you can go to um, a website called Wiki... Uh, Every, Everypedia. Everypedia. Yes. Yeah, actually, my, wife's, my website has a link to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and what website. is your website, Judge? In it's case very I... easy, rudyapodaca.com. There we go. Okay. 
And um, he graduated with honors from New Mexico State University which a batch, with a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics. Um, don't I, I could never do that. So ju Judge, I think, is a genius, but that's just, I'm, I'm being, but it's, so you could say I'm being biased, but on the other hand. And flattering. And flattering, but um, on the other hand, the, I'm not making this up. He went to Georgetown University Law, Law Center, and he received his Juris Doctorate degree, and then he began practicing law in New Mexico in 1964. Um, one thing I did read further on in your bio, um, Judge, is you were the only Hispanic at the Georgetown Law School. In my class, yes. And we had a class of about 160 students. And I was the only Hispanic, yes. And were there any African Americans? There were none in my class. Were there any women? Two. Okay. So the, the days Which that. differs quite a bit. About 51% of the enrollment in law schools today, university, oh. is women. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I know. It's changed dramatically. But I'm just saying he was a, he was a groundbreaker. And um, having a mathematics degree, I'm sure, impressed them a lot at Georgetown University in order for him to get into that school. And he also um, wanted to go... Judge, I'm going to go a little bit, but then I want you to talk a little bit. You wanted to be in Georgetown, specifically, in, in the D.C. area. Yes. Okay, yes, can I, you tell us a little bit about what you were thinking? Well, you got to remember that I was graduating from college in 1961 in June of 1961, a long time ago. And uh, I had, of course, an option to uh, apply for admission at the University of New Mexico Law School. But I had gone to school there, and I had been in New Mexico. I wanted to have an experience outside okay. the state. And our, at that time, I was somewhat interested in politics, and I thought that being in the D.C. area would be uh, good for me, a good experience for me to be in case I ever did go into politics. Yes. And I knew that Georgetown was considered to be, recognized to be a good law school. Yes. Uh, one, one of the, at that time, I don't know if it was one of the top law schools, but certainly today it is. I think, is it a Catholic school? I think it is. Uh, right? Yes, it is. Yes, Catholic okay. University. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, I probably should know all these things. I guess I did, but I just, but anyway, thank you for that. Um, um, Judge Apodaca was general counsel and town attorney for the city of Mesilla, for the school board of Gadsden Independent School District, special assistant attorney general for the state of New Mexico, um, represented Citizens Bank of Las Cruces as general counsel for nine years, served on the board of directors for that bank um, for 11 years. Um, he was appointed by the governor of New Mexico as a regent to serve on the board of regents of his alma mater, New Mexico State University, where he served for eight years and two years as board president. So um, aside from having authored 1,127 opinions, um, he has also written um, many articles and he has four books. And we want to talk about your books. Um, so we'll talk about those in a little bit. But I do want to go through a couple of more things. So Judge, your, your, your parents, let's talk about a little bit about your parents. And your dad was, uh, he became more of a, well, you, you tell me a little bit about your, your parents. 
Well, I consider myself having had humble beginnings in Las Cruces. I was born in 1939. Uh, shortly after I was born, a few years afterwards, my dad was drafted into the army. He, although he had five children, I've got four, four siblings at the time. And uh, uh, he worked uh, as a clerk at J.C. Penney uh, for what I recall back, back then in the late 40s and the early 50s, 60 cents an hour. Okay. And, uh, but he worked there for some 20-some years. Okay. Um, both my mother and dad uh, had to go to work soon for the families because of, of needing income. Yes. So they never finished high school. So uh, of the five children, uh, three of them, uh, the three boys, we all graduated from college. So that was quite a, a change from my mom and dad's time. So they were very proud of their family. Uh, Juliet and Priscilla, my two sisters, never went to college, but they finished high school and they, they had jobs. And So my, my parents were very proud of their family. So I, I'm very, uh, my mom and dad have both passed away, of course. My dad in 1998, my mother in 2002. Uh, but I have fond memories of growing up with them and what they could do for us. Uh, there was always food on the table. I remember that. And and they instilled quite an ethic in you children, some somehow, some way, right? Yes, I, I feel that implicit in their behavior, the way they encouraged us in school, I felt uh, that I owed them a lot. And the fact that I decided to go on to college and get a college degree, go on to get a law degree, and uh, I attribute that to their support and uh, encourage work, and encourage her. And, and their work, work and their work ethic yes. because they they were hard workers. My mother worked hard raising us and my dad, my dad worked hard for us yes. in different jobs. So I well, I learned a lot from them implicitly in that regard. And not only were you the chief judge of the Court of Appeals, your brother, um, Jerry, t tell the people what he went well, on to become. He, he went on to become governor. Jerry is five years, was uh, he passed away two months ago. Jerry was five years older than I was, uh, but uh, and I, I like to think that I helped him a lot uh, get elected. We there were a lot of supporters that he had that did. Your your dad being one of them. Your your parents. Yes. But anyway, Jerry uh, succeeded in politics. He was in the state senate for about three or four years, and then he decided to run for governor. And he ran in a field of five Democratic candidates in the Democratic primary uh, back in '75, uh, and. Uh, well, in 74, really, because he was governor from 75 to 78 for four years. But uh, he ran in the field of five Democratic candidates. He was one of five, and he won. And then he only won the general election against the Republican by about 3,000 votes. Wow. <laughs> well, and, and to think about it, we come from Las Cruces, which isn't exactly what I would call the power center of New Mexico. Can, and to do that, it's kind of... Kind of, um, I, I don't know. Will you, do you understand what I'm getting yeah, at? You, you, you don't consider it the power center, do you? I mean, no, I said it, I do not consider yeah, it the that, power center. That's correct. No, the, the opposite. No, no. Well, Albuquerque and Santa Fe, Santa Fe being the state capital and Albuquerque being the largest city, being in the northern part of the state, uh, Las Cruces uh, is kind of third rate in that regard. <laughs> right, yes. You know, although you and I consider it God's country down there. Yes. Uh, a lot of people do, do not, you know. And, but uh, Las Cruces, uh, right now, and at that time, 
probably was the second largest city in the state. Right. Albuquerque being the, the largest right. and Las Cruces following. So, so Las Cruces, even though it's been on a smaller scale, still it's been the second largest city in the state. Right. And for you all to go on, and your brother is governor, and you as from, chief judge. Being from that area, yes, yes. to get ele electable in the Albuquerque area, where they know mostly candidates that are resident right. from Bernalillo County or Santa Fe County. Exactly. It, yeah, that is. It, it's kind of a, it's quite a victory. Yes, that's, that's what I was driving at. <laughs> and so... Um, but Las Cruces, like you say, it is the second biggest city in New Mexico, and we do have New Mexico State University, and we have a lot going on. Um, so um, let me go through, and I talked about you being the only Hispanic in your class. Um, did, I'm sure you didn't get treated any, I don't know. Were you treated differently? Because no, I never of, felt I did. I don't time. I mean... Although in my, in my books, and my novels, I... I do relate a lot of uh, uh, racial prejudice incidences, you know, of, of racism that I've experienced in my life. But right. I can't, I can't say that I was treated differently in Georgetown. Uh, either way, uh, I did go there at a time when affirmative action was was in place, and and so I wasn't accepted because I was Hispanic. You mean it was not in place? It was not in place. Yeah. Then, right. I'm saying so right. That because of that, I'm saying either way, I was not treated differently. Right. And I mean, I don't know how many. I I, I know few people. I mean, I'm a lawyer too that had a mathematics degree in my law school class. I mean, that's that's um, quite a quite a deal. You have a great mind and and. Um, as on a personal note, um, Judge has been my friend, my lawyer, my mentor, and um, it's just and for my whole family. Um, we go and, back a long time, don't we? we? Oh, we do, we do, and uh, and you've always given the best advice, the best advice, and um, you still do. You just, thank you. Yes, and I mean it goes on. Um, your the the some of the awards you've won. Um, it really goes on. I'd rather you bypass it. Okay, we're going to bypass it, but it, it. But I do want people to look into it, and I want to... They, I want can, it. Read, they can read about it. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, website. but there's on a... website. But you do play chess. Oh, that's one of my hobbies, yeah. You do do needlepoint, calli calligraphy. Some and of you, that is past in the past. And in coin collections. And, um, okay, you've, you've written a lot of articles. I mean, they've been published in the Austin American Statesman... Um, the Houston uh, Chronicle. Houston Chronicle. Okay. The, the San Antonio Express News. Yes, I saw that too. Um, so you you're a you're a um, prolific publisher of articles, and there's a lot of them. I want to talk about a well, couple. I would say writer. I'm a, I'm a writer. Right. Yeah, you're not a publisher. I didn't yeah. publish it. But my bad. They, they the newspaper published. Yeah, my bad. But I wrote a lot of commentary. That's exactly. That's what I meant to say. But um, just a couple of them caught my eye, Judge. There's a, it goes on and on. But um, and by the way, that bio that you're reading from, they can see it on my website. So if they want right, to right, anything right. specific, they can even read those commentaries on my website. Okay, good. But if you want, but to I, I just wanted to you just to touch so, on a couple some things. Of the topics, yeah. A, a lot of articles, but I saw addressing mental health key in helping Austin's homeless. What was that article about, Judge? Well, essentially, um, I think the article you're referring to is one in which I indicate that 
the the homelessness the experience that we have in our country in general and in Austin in particular uh, is because of mental illness. Uh, yes. you, have, you have to recall what I do what I did in the article back in the in the in the seventies and the sixties. Uh, the courts declared insane asylums and mental institutions right. is uh, violating the law and keeping people from being li uh, at liberty. And at that time, uh, because of those rulings in Jackson, in the Supreme Court ruling, many of these mentally ill people were let out of the right, uh, right. mental institutions. Basically and, onto the streets and, in many and, cases. And, and so what inevitably the consequence was that they ended up in the streets. Yes. So there they were and they perpetuated the problem. They gave birth to others and others followed in suit. So a lot of the homeless people that we have, not just in Austin but elsewhere, are people that are mentally ill. Yes. And, and that's why <clears throat> law enforcement officers and that's why the medical profession, they have to realize that and deal with it accordingly. So the article was on that. Um, in addition to that article, um, I was asked by uh, some professors at New Mexico State University to be a, a part of a training course for law enforcement throughout the country. And they created videos and they had as, as speakers, a psychiatrist, psychologist, law enforcement people, uh, me as judge. And I went ahead and lectured on mental illness in the law. Uh, and it was recorded and videotaped, and the videotape of that is still available on YouTube. Okay. It, it, it was placed on YouTube by the law enforcement people in New Mexico, and it's there. It's about an hour long, and I speak there about mental illness and the law. Well, let me ask you a question, Judge, that I have on my mind. I know, I don't, I don't know if it was under Reagan, I think he closed a lot of the mental hospitals, or I don't you know, I can't put all. I don't. I don't. I'm not an expert on the topic. But I'm not so sure it was a presidential act. I think oh, okay. The, the courts. The courts are the ones that essentially said that a lot of people behind bars in mental asylums, mental hospitals, right. didn't belong there. That right. they they need to have their freedom. Well, and it's it's my opinion. A lot of people in jail right now. It's mostly mental. Yes, of course. That's. that's I mean, true. it's it's mostly mental. So so it is a white widespread problem. But judge should. Um, and I know we're, we, we're going to move on, but, but I, I do refer... I do it's refer a big to, problem in this country. I do country. refer to that video if, some, if somebody wants to yeah. know, because I speak about it for about an hour on the video. Do you think we need more mental institutions? No. I, well, I mean, what do you think some of the key, uh, just one or two of the I, key I think, solutions is? I, I think that we need more awareness from the public about the problem that mental illness does uh, pose for us in the world. Uh, and we also have to have education so that the stigma of mental illness is taken away. In other words, yeah. there's still a stigma. People, people do not like to think that a member of their family is mentally ill, Right. Uh, that type of thing. So uh, the stigma has to be taken away. I don't know that we ever will succeed in doing that, but we, we should try. And, uh, and then, of course, we need to make sure that the people that need care and treatment right. Are treated right, and and for that reason, to go back to your question, no, I don't think the answer is more mental institutions because that's what we did away from. We try to get away from that. So you and, agree with that? Yeah, I agree with it. Okay. I, I think I think that sometimes uh, we we try to uh, warehouse take, them. We try to take care of the problem, and and we do we overdo it.
kind of like put it out of sight, out of mind, and you don't think that that's a good exactly. thing. Okay, exactly. that's that's a nice Christian that, attitude that was, too, by the way. That was the mode of thinking of the past, and okay. we, we've got to move along with the times and change our way of thinking. Right. That's why I'm a Democrat, and that's why I'm progressive, because I think that, that the laws and our policies must change with time. Right. Sorry, Judge, I'm going into another article. The elusiveness of happiness. Can you just talk to us a little bit about that? I just, that caught my eye. Well, I guess the thing to say about these topics that I wrote about, I wrote about many things about the law, aspects of the law. Right. But I also delved in other topics. Right. Like, no, and like for example, elusiveness of happiness. Uh, well, I, I think, uh, and, and I, in my books, I speak of it through characters. Um, but I think that uh, happiness is, is something in the world. Uh, first of all, life is a struggle. Life is not easy. Uh, and given that, because it's not easy, it, we are given, we were God given emotions and feelings that make life hard. And the sooner we realize that in, 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 in life, the better off we'll be. Because then we'll delve and deal with it and confront it as what it is. Um, People try to be happy. and Like all the time. Like all the time. Right. And you can't, first of all, be 100% happy all mm -hmm. of the time. Uh, so that's what I mean by the elusiveness. And, and, and in, in the book, for example, one of the characters says that it's practically non-existent at some times. Exactly. At some point in time, it's non-existent. And, and if people look back at their lives, um, they they reflect and wonder whether they were happy, whether they led happy lives. And they have a hard time answering that question. And uh, for example, I read uh, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner, for example, who's written several books on uh, behavior and people and, and society. Uh, he says that when he's gone to sick beds, people dying, yeah, from sickness, cancer, whatever. Um, it's not so much that they're afraid of dying as they are afraid of not having uh, been significant in life, not having led a life that was productive. That That's what they, they, they're wondering, did I live, live a good, right. full life? And uh, so they're not afraid of the death. They're afraid of not having lived, so to speak. Right. So we're talking about, you know, philosophically about... No, I like it. I like it, though, again. Judge. But that's what that article did. Well, with. the thing is, Judge, I think even depression, people are like, oh, you can never be sad. You can... Uh, depression is a complicated word. But um, I think being sad and down is... It's part of life. It's uh, part I think of life. it's even more part of life than, than being elated and happy. Exactly. But I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well... It can be that way. I think a person successful if he can get a little bit of both. Right. In other words, less of the sadness and yeah. and negative stuff of life and more of the uh, positive. Well, it's my understanding President Lincoln was very depressed pretty much most yes, of his there's, life. There's, yes, uh, that's true. And uh, I don't know whether he was clinically depressed, but he did suffer from depression. Uh, depression is one of the, were we talking mental illness? Uh, Depression is a very major part of that. Right. Now, a lot of us don't suffer from clinical depression, which means that it's, it's more deep-rooted and it's, right. it's uh, uh, in a different level. But uh, 
but we we have our our blue mondays and oh yeah exactly in other words uh, and, and and it's good that we do have them because when we have our happy moments we can appreciate them more yes so, and i do think that the constant pursuit of being constantly jacked up happy is ridiculous i think it's a lost lost goal i don't think that we should that should be our goal no but it almost it almost seems like society in certain ways, encourages now, that. But now, if if you tell me what what is it we should practice more, and and it's hard, it's hard to do this. But I think there's not enough goodness in the world, uh, and kindness, let's, let's, and kindness. Let's not talk about religion. Let's not talk about about Christianity or, or Judaism, whatever. Let's just talk about uh, humanness and humanity, and. Uh, for example, one of the things that one of the characters in my new book uh, talks about when he talks about the 83-year-old friend that he made in this little town of San Miguel when he moved there with his parents, he talks about the goodness in that man. And there's very little goodness in the yeah. world. All of us have good in us. But to be when, when you can, can say to some, about somebody, he was a good person. Right. That is saying a lot. It is. It means a lot. Now, it doesn't mean that in every good person there's not badness because oh, exactly. we, we're not perfect. So not being perfect, we're going to have a little bit of bad in us. Well, we all, all of us are going to sin. All of us are not going to right. behave as a good person should in this life. Right. But but I, I feel that, that instead of having to have happiness as a goal, I think, if we should have a goal of being a good person. Awesome. I love it. I love it. And here's the other thing, Judge, what I've encountered in my life is I've encountered a lot of things too as well. Not like you, but um, the thing I is you get what you give back. You get what you give. In other words, when you have an encounter with somebody, you can be grumpy, you can be real businesslike, you can be in a rush. But a lot of times, like, I'll see people at the convenience store anywhere, and I'll make little jokes. And and they smile and they light up. They want that. People don't want you to just pass them with a sour face. They People um, respond. At, in other, do, you, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yes, Jeff? yes. And I agree with what you said. As long as we don't mistake that, uh, that uh, when people get, face tragedies in their families or face some negative aspect of life, uh, some terrible experience, uh, for people to feel that they must have done something wrong to, to deserve that type of experience. Right. That, that is not true because I've known a lot of people who have not deserved the misfortune oh, that yes. life has dealt oh, them. Absolutely. You know? and, and so uh, some of us are luckier than others. Some mm -hmm. of us are more fortunate than others in that respect. And my wife and I, Nancy and I, feel blessed that in our air age, I, I just turned 84 last week. Uh, Happy birthday, Judge. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. But, but, and I don't feel like I'm 84, but, and I, I don't feel like, I hope I don't look like I'm 84, but be that as it may, uh, it, it's just important to, to, uh, to do as much good as you can in this world and, and to enjoy life. Right. And the, the, the closer you get to your, last day on earth, which a person as you age, you do get closer to it, uh, the more you reflect on how uh, appreciative you are of having a good quality of life. 
So I wake up every day thanking God that he's given me another day. Well, well, let me ask you this, Judge, and I I appreciate that. We have a lot of young people that listen to podcasts. That's the the largest demographic, okay? Yes, I'm I'm sure that's... I've heard that. And I want to talk about your your books, okay? But it's not the only demographic. It's all all ages, but it's a large demographic that listen to podcasts. There's few people I know on the planet, and I'm so... Fortunate to have you as as our guest, but there's few people I know on the planet um, that I would ask this question to because um, and here's my question and it may be a little bit rambling, but so be it. But I'm going to try to keep it succinct because you are a judge and you, and you don't like people wasting your time. <laughs> no, but I don't, I don't want to intimidate you. <laughs> no, my question is for young people. They see you. They're going to see this podcast. They see the the successes you've achieved in life. They how say you're a 18, 19 year old and you're graduating high school or something like that and they want to know they they don't really know what what they want to do, what direction. How do you, what would you tell them? I mean, for me, I might say um, maybe develop a skill set, a set of skills, a, a stack of skills in a certain area but this isn't me this podcast is about you judge what would you tell a young person what um how to go about you know leading a good life and to become a a person like you well i don't know that necessarily people should aspire to be like me uh i don't consider myself a role model in that regard uh i'll leave that up to uh to God and to other people to decide what kind of person I am. Uh, I just know that I want to aspire to be a good person. I hope that I have been. Uh, I'm not proud of everything I've done. When you ask that question, what pops into my mind immediately, Robert, is the fact that as an 84-year-old, the times that I grew up in, and being a believer that things change through the years, there's some basics that don't change, but but uh, life has become more complex in my view. So I I kind of feel sorry for the youth of today, uh, the 18, 19, 20-year-olds right, right. now, uh, because there's much so much to choose from. Uh, when I grew up, if we had a telephone at home, it was one color, black, right. and it weighed a ton. <laughs> And, and it, it was a landline. And, yeah, and we had a radio. It was just a, correct, a landline, and then it was a radio. Uh, we didn't have the choices that youth have today. Yes. And that includes education. That includes the universities. The, that is so true. Uh, what, what, what is available to them. And this, the other thing is what is available to them and by way of, of vocation, of, of what is it they want to do in life. So I don't blame ch- children today uh, out of high school not knowing what they want to do for the rest of their lives. So the only, and I feel fortunate that I grew up in, in the day of when, well, there was no TV when I was in high school, but it started right after I started uh, my senior year of high school and Perry Mason was on TV and you had those shows that oh, you yeah. say, oh, I want to be an attorney. You know, you would okay. see those shows and say, I want to be like Perry Mason. And those are the things that would get you to think about going into the legal profession. So I feel myself fortunate that when I graduated from high school, 
my thoughts, even though I went on to major in mathematics, and the reason I did there's a story behind that. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Well, I was, I was, I, I excelled in sciences, physics, chemistry, mathematics, all the sciences. Uh, those were my best grades in high school. Those are the topics I run and hide from, but we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go on. There are a lot of people. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I like statistics. Where some but... people stayed away from that, <laughs> yeah. I, I devoured it. That's awesome. And I couldn't take enough math courses. Wow. Uh, and and uh, so when I went on to college, there was no question in my mind that I wanted to major in mathematics. And um, uh, so, and I said, well, what would I do as a mathematician? Well, maybe teach, I don't know. But that wasn't what I wanted to be, even though I majored in mathematics. I wanted to major in mathematics. The, the, uh, the School of Mathematics at New Mexico State was in the College of Arts and Sciences. Because of that, you got a liberal education right. in the liberal arts. Right. And you took a lot of basic courses in, in arts and sciences. So I knew that it was something to qualify me for law school. And at that time, especially even today, law schools do not want students to come into law schools having taken law courses in college. No, no. They do that exactly. In, they do that in law school. Pre-law as a major, I, I don't recommend. Right. And so, and so, therefore, uh, uh, now when I was a junior, people would say, "You want to go to law school and you're majoring in mathematics? You're doing the wrong thing." <laughs> And I went to a professor who happened to have a law degree, but he taught history. And uh, Ira Clark, a fine uh, professor at the university. And I went to him, I told him, I said, I've got a dilemma. I'm, I'm thinking people are questioning my, my uh, education that I'm not getting the, the proper type of, of degree. And he smiled at me, he says, no, he says, you continue on. You're getting a liberal arts education, mathematics. And what I found in law school it helped my legal analysis. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because I, I dabbled in, in uh, uh, not applied mathematics, but theoretical mathematics, like set theory and, and uh, Boolean algebra and that type of math, which throws fear in the minds of people like you. Yeah. But that I devoured, as I said. So anyway, it helped me. And I'm glad that I majored in mathematics. And uh, so getting back to your question, I haven't forgotten that question. I would say I know it's tough, but if you don't know what to do, at least you can, you can I would not put off, I would get a university degree. Uh, there are some people, for example, that would want to go into some trade. For those people, I would say, well, you don't necessarily have to get a, a bachelor's degree. Go to some community college, get, uh, you want to be a, a welder? Go to welding school. Right. At some trade. Uh, you want to be a But get some type of certification. Some type of certification, yes. You need that. Yes. Because without that type of experience or background, you're going to have a hard time showing people or proving to people right. that you're capable right. of a certain trade. Exactly. So you need to have the education. Uh, you need to learn how to communicate. Uh, I, I think it's important for people not only to learn how to read and read well and read good books, but how to write. Yes. And communicating, that'll help, that skill will help them. So exactly. I, would, I, totally I would encourage, agree with that. I would encourage that type of training, yes. uh, that type of education. And I would encourage that they do that, no matter if they still haven't decided what they want to do in life. Right. Because you're going to need it, 
no matter what you decide you right. want to do. Uh, so that's what's important. Uh, that's a type of, uh, and I would say, don't worry about not start school. A lot of universities, you don't have to declare a major till your junior year. Right. Uh, well, or, Judge, uh, in my case, I didn't decide to become or to, to go to law school until I was a senior. And I'll tell you a funny story. You know my dad. You knew my dad. Yes. He's, he's passed. But um, I talked to one of the brothers at, I won't mention any names, at um, St. Edward's University where I went to college. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm thinking about going to law school. And he was an older brother. And he says, is your dad a lawyer? And I said, no. He goes, forget it. He says, forget it. You'll never make it. And so I told my dad that. And my dad says, that is, uh, let me just clean up the language. But he said that was nonsense. Yeah, and, I uh, agree with that. But had, did you ever run across people saying things like that to no, you? No, no. that I don't know where that came from. I, that, <laughs> it's, it's hard for me to believe that he would have said that. Yeah, he said that. Um, I don't know what his background was, but uh, obviously he wasn't a lawyer. I No, he wasn't. But, but, he, but he, he, he certainly that, made it sound like that, it had to be a... That, that certainly is not the criteria to determine whether or not you should go into law school. Sorry. Right. But... Uh, uh, in any event, uh, I don't know how much time we've got, but uh, oh, we're do we're doing great. Are we? Okay, but good. but but the thing is, Judge. Um, uh, one last thing I wanted to say is that um, when people are looking to you for inspiration, um, can they contact you if somebody wanted a little bit of well, advice about certainly. life? I've never turned down. Uh, when I was in law practice, if somebody was interested in going to law school and they called me up, I'd never turn them down. I would make room for them then if they if they were if they were in law school and it, they wanted to talk to an attorney to ask certain questions about law practice and things of that sort. Uh, I've never turned down anybody, and uh, you know, in this office that we're sitting at right now, uh, several law students who applied to Georgetown Law Center uh, sat here with me, being interviewed by me, because for about three or four years, uh, I represented the the law center in interviewing admittees to the law school. Oh, wow. Uh, in other words, so that they would, so the student wouldn't have to go to interview at in DC, where the school, the school is. Right. Uh, they would go to people like me, and then I would submit a report and indicate whether or not I recommended that they be okay. admitted or not. So so I, I always did that. and. To this day, I've never turned anybody down. Okay, either I'll talk to them on the phone or talk to them in person. And you're still a practicing attorney, and you do do you do mediation or do, what? My, what is your main my, focus? My right? my my law law license in uh, uh, in New Mexico now. A few years ago, I deactivated it, so not right. it's not an active status. But my license in, in in Texas is still active. Okay, I still have to take uh, continuing legal education right. courses. I have to take so many hours a, a year, and I'm still an active attorney. In, 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 okay. But I'm not practicing law. I would do mediation or arbitration. Okay. But it doesn't keep me from talking to people that call me uh, who want me to refer them to an attorney. Okay. Uh, but I tell people that I'm not practicing law now. I'm devoting my time to my family, to my grandchildren, 
uh, to my right. And your mediation and arbitration. And, and, well, mediation and arbitration is the only law that I do. Okay, right but how, how do people, con sometimes I forget, but I don't want to forget. How would somebody contact you if they wanted to talk to you about mediation, arbitration? Well, first or of all, I'm, I'm listed in, 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 in the phone book, whatever there is the phone books. I've never used one for a long time now, but yeah. but I'm, I'm on the internet. I have a website. My website has all my contact information. Right, Ru RudyAppadaka.com. RudyAppadaka.com. It's got my email address. It's okay. Got my mobile phone. I no longer have a landline. Okay. And I might have to change my website because of that. Because two months ago we did away with a landline. Right. So now it's on my mobile phone. Right. It's listed on my website, so that people can learn about me on that. And if they don't want to learn more about my family, and about my background and my career. Uh, they can go to Everypedia, which is a link okay. on the on the first page of my website. Okay. Now, Judge, I see some books next to you. What well, are these I, books? I would like to discuss my, my, my four novels that I've written. Uh, these, these books here that you asked me to get together are the four novels that I've written in my life. Aside from the commentaries and the essays that I've written from, yes. on the law and on other topics, uh, we start off with The Waxen Image, which was published in 1977 by a small press in Mesilla, New Mexico. Uh, the Waxen Image. It's a suspense novel. Uh, it's a suspense thriller that takes a person from San Francisco into New Mexico in search of his daughter, who's missing. Uh, that, oh, wow. that was written back in 77. The next book So, is, like a suspense... Uh, it, it's a suspense thriller. Suspense say, thriller, yeah. okay. Uh, it, it's a mystery. And, and the next one is Pursuit, which is a uh, novel that I wrote back in 2003, 2002, around then. Uh, there was quite a bit of span of time between The Waxen Image and Pursuit. But after Pursuit, they all came in, in tens. It seemed like I wrote Pursuit in 2003, I wrote A Rare Thing in 2012, and I wrote uh, When the Angels Came in, 20, in 2023. Uh, so, they can't be easy to do, though. So it's ten, year, ten, years apart, 10 years apart. No, well, it depends on the individual. But see, all writing is difficult. It's not easy. Right. Uh, some, You know, I've, I've run into people that say, I wish I could be a, a novelist. I <laughs> wish I could be a writer uh, like Rudy Apodaca or Stephen King or somebody. And say, well, they can be. You know, the question is, how good of a writer? How good of a novelist? Uh, and you have to work hard at it. So nobody nobody writes a book uh, on the first draft. In fact, I I've heard professors of literature and and creative writing say novels and books are not written. They're they either say they're edited or they're revised. And I would say they're revised. They're edited too, but they're revised because. The revisions that I went through for each of these books is monumental. In other words, you never stop writing. You, uh, you know, and of course, once it's published, it's out there for the people to write the writing that you wrote. But you can't go back. Well, you can with later editions, I suppose. But it's like you take an artist that paints, uh, a Van Gogh or any other artist that paints, and he's painted a piece, a masterpiece for just a piece, and it's been sold, and it's out there, and maybe it ends up in a museum. You never find that artist going to that museum with his uh, paints and refinishing it. <laughs> no. You say, well, it's not finished. You have to it's call it quits at some point. You have point. to call it quits at some point, and you do that with novels, too. But so, in any Pursuit, event, uh, tell me a little bit more about Pursuit. 
Judge. Well, pursuit, uh, it, it has a double meaning. Uh, it's about a lawyer in Albuquerque, in New Mexico. All of my novels are set in New Mexico. Awesome. And uh, Pursuit is set mostly in Albuquerque. It's got some scenes in, in Santa Fe, and it's got some scenes in Greece and in uh, um, other areas, other places in the country, Paris, France. But for the most part, it's set in New Mexico. And it's about an attorney, John Garcia, uh, who practices law there. And uh, he's at a state in his life, he's got two children and a wife, uh, where he, he works for a, a big law firm in, in Albuquerque, uh, and he's mostly a corporate lawyer, and he feels that something's missing from his life. And um, at the beginning of the novel, and um, he's searching for something because he's missing something. And he undergoes, uh, at the time, he agrees to represent a young Hispanic man who's charged with attempted murder of the mayor of, of Al uh, the, the daughter of the mayor of Albuquerque. Oh, he was court appointed. No, no, he wasn't. He just represented pro bono. He, okay. In other words, the family went to see him because he had represented the father in a workers' comp case. Oh, okay. And, he, and, and the father the father and mother went to see him and said, my, my son needs help. And he's a criminal attorney. He said, well, I don't handle criminal cases anymore. Uh, the public defender that was appointed to your son, he could probably do a better job than I could. We want you. We, mm -hmm. we trust you. Anyway, he doesn't let him down, and he finally agrees to represent that, that boy. How interesting. In representing that boy, he starts learning something about himself and about what he's missing in law practice. And he feels that he's lost track of his own people, the Hispanics, and and now he's got corporate clients. Right. And he doesn't rent to represent flesh and blood people. Right. And and he feels like he's that's what's missing. But in addition to that, from the very first page, you realize that somebody's following this lawyer. And eventually you find out that it has to do with this tour in Vietnam. Oh. And You mean uh, in a bad way they're following him? Uh, yes. I don't want you to give up the yeah, whole Yeah, no, book. I don't want to give up who's following well, him. Well, no, okay. But, 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 but it but wasn't bad, necessarily no. a good words, follower. His, let's put it this way. His life is being threatened. Okay. So he's being pursued by people unknown. Oh, wow. Okay. okay? Uh, so the title Pursuit has a double meaning. Pursuit has reference to the fact that he is somebody that's being pursued, and that's a mystery. Oh, okay. And the other thing is, he's trying to pursue something else in his... I see. And by the way, he, he goes on, in, in, in the senator, the U.S. senator, who's uh, used to be in high school, play high school football with him, um, wants to, to nominate him to a federal judgeship so he wants him to think about that and uh, John Garcia was quarterback and this U.S. senator was his best receiver <laughs> so they know each other very well oh okay so so you know that the appointment will be made but anyway <laughs> the point is that that's what that book's about um, a rare thing is a coming of age story yeah actually I wrote that story way before pursuit and way before the wax and image but I set, the, I set the, the manuscript aside, and I picked it up after I wrote Pursuit and published Pursuit, and I, and I finished A Rare Thing. And that's a coming-of-age story about a young boy growing up in a fictional town of San Carlos, New Mexico, which is actually uh, Las Cruces back in the 50s and 60s. By a different name. By yeah. a different name. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, but uh, people would know that. And people ask me, for example... 
Well, are your stories uh, autobiographical? And I tell them, uh, technically, no, they're not. But then I, I add a, I add a, a proviso. I say, uh, but most writers I know, and I'm no different, write about the things they know about, and so the create the 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 characters they create are based on people, real life people that they knew. Even yes. though they're fiction, right, right. So, so uh, a rare thing. It's a it's a coming of age story. Is it about my life? No. The boy, the boy, the young boy, in a rare thing, loses his mother when he's six years of age. My mother lived to be ninety five. Uh, I didn't lose her until much later in my life. Uh, uh, the boy's father also dies somewhere in the novel. Uh, but does it have something in common with me in my life? The boy's father in a rare thing is an alcoholic. My father in real life was an alcoholic. So I know something about alcoholism. And uh, now, was my father a bad person because he was an alcoholic? The answer is no. Why? Because most alcoholics I know are good people, to be honest with you. Right. They just have a disease. Right. And, exactly. and in any event, so so this boy's father, so the fact that when this when this boy goes out searching for his father in bars is he's doing oh, wow. something he's doing something that i did in my life right uh, i loved my father dearly right. I mean, that's the reason i went out for him but but anyway uh my father finally handled well, that well judge problem. i i respect you for bringing that up yeah i wanted because, to bring that up because well, no. i think people can learn from these type of things absolutely you know? absolutely so, you know and, no um, no successful person in life and i don't know i'll leave it up to people to know how successful a life i led but everyone has encountered these type of problems in one way or the other yes um and of course then we come to after the coming to age story of of uh, the boy in a rare thing uh, the latest one is when the angels came and a lot of people say gee was that based on your life or you know these people they seem to come alive uh no they're all fictional they're all fictional uh the old man in when the angels came is also based in new mexico yes it, it's it's the setting of, of that book for the most part, is San Miguel, New Mexico. That's awesome. where it, that's where it takes place. Nice. And San Miguel is a little village of about 1,100 people, uh, south about five six miles south of Las Cruces. When I practiced law in Las Cruces, a lot of my clients were from yes, San Miguel. I'm very familiar. La Mesa in that area, and uh, farm country. And uh, so I, I know these people. But we people. won't mention Chopis. I'm not sure it's even open. <laughs> I, I I mentioned Chopis and when. Oh, I, you did. Yeah, and, and when in the, the book, angels came, Chopis for the audience. When is, the angel came, is is it still open, Judge? Yes, it still is. Okay, Chopis is probably one of the greatest restaurants. Mexican food, Mexican food, Mexican food restaurants in the world, and um, it's, it's in it's Mesa, New Mexico. Yes, just, it's just a, a small restaurant, and um, oh my gosh, I wish I was there right now. But anyway, well, I, I, I divert. I, I say when the angels came, uh, I think it's in the in the. It's written by the 12-year-old boy when he gets to be a graduate student at New Mexico State at age 22. Okay. And when he writes that journal, he writes a journal and he says, I'm going to tell you a story about this old man that I met when I first moved with my parents when I was 12 years old to San Miguel, New Mexico, a little place I never knew. I said, San Miguel's very tiny. It's just a little village of 1,100, unincorporated village, 1,100 people. And I said... Uh, 
you might tell a tourist uh, that on his way to Chopas to eat at the Mexican cuisine, he uh, better not blink when he passes something <laughs> else because he'll, he'll miss it. Yeah, that's it's true. Tiny, yeah. That's how tiny it is. Anyway, uh, so I do mention Chopas there in that regard. But, that is funny. But uh, And they got the best chili rellenos uh, on the planet. But yeah. anyway, that's another. I have no interest in Chopis, any financial interest, <laughs> other than I wish I was there right now. Yeah. You that, probably do too. It's named after uh, Chope Benavides, who was the owner. Yes. Uh, he's now passed on. Uh, but, uh, you know, for the right now, I've got a senior moment. I can't remember his real name. But Chope is just a nickname. Uh, but it's based on his real name. And I would think about it once when we finish, well, when when I, we finish the when interview, I, I'll remember what his oh, yeah, real but, name was. Um, what I loved about it is it's a little restaurant and the best um, chili rellenos. But right behind it, they're growing the chili. They're, they're that's, literally growing that's the right. chili. That's and right. then they, I mean, that's how fresh it is. That's so, right. Um, but anyway. Anyway, so, 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 that, so that's what, when the angels came, is, is a double coming of age story because even though it's about the relationship between this 12-year-old boy when he moves into town and this 83-year-old man that lives there, the book actually, when even though it starts with the journal entry of the boy, uh, he starts writing about the man. And the first chapter starts when the old 83-year-old man is six years of age. Oh, okay. And he lives in, 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 uh, in uh, Socorro, New Mexico, which is not right close. To, I mean, Socorro, uh, Texas, close to El Paso. Oh, okay. And that's where he's from, and that's where he grows up. And he loses his parents at age six, and his uncle raise, raises him uh, through high school. And then he goes on to the Marine Corps. You're talking about not knowing what to do. Uh, his uncle suggested he go to, uh, at that time, Texas Western College, which is part of now University of Texas at El Paso. Right. And, but he decided at college at that time, he wasn't sure he, what he wanted to do. So he decides he wants to get the military out of, and avoid the draft. So he, he enters the Marine Corps for three years. That's what he does. Uh, he's actually sent to Korea because the Korean War breaks out right about three months after he goes into the Marine Corps. And his tour is extended from three years to four years, and he goes to Korea and fights there. And as a result, he is awarded the Silver Star. And his uncle, meanwhile, has died and left a little place, a little home in San Miguel, New Mexico. And that's why he ends up there. He goes to San Miguel because his, his uncle, he inherited this house from his uncle. Nice. And he happens to turn out to be a welder. His uncle was a welder, and he turns out to be a welder. He gets a job at White Sands, as a welder, and he does that which, which is White Sands Missile Range. White Sands Missile Range. It's a military base um, near Las Cruces, New Mexico. Um, it's called White Sands because it has, I think, 40 square miles of white sand. Um, it's a... Egyptian. They're yeah, Egyptian. and it's, it's a, sand. Sand it's a natural sand. and beautiful phenomenon. Right. And in any event, uh, so he, he works there like most of those people there, and I describe in there the fact that the military had buses that would pick up the workers that went to White Sands at the yeah. time. It was a military base, but they had a lot of civilian employees. Right. And the Las Cruces community and the El Paso community and the Alamogordo community uh, relied on the employment, not only at Fort Bliss, but at White Sands for a lot of civilians that worked there, civil service. And 
Don Santiago is one of them. Santiago Dominguez, the 83-year-old, is one of them. So anyway, the book is about the relationship that develops uh, between the old man and the boy. And uh, the boy, when he meets his friends in San Miguel, they tell him to stay away from this old man because he's, they call him the hermit because he's a recluse. And they say, stay away from him. And instead of staying, he, he's intrigued by the man and he happens to bump into him accidentally at the town's only grocery store. And he helps carry his groceries to his home and they develop a friendship. Oh, okay. And a very close friendship. Um, uh, meanwhile, all these things happen to uh, to the little boy, Jamie uh, Almaguer is his name, happened to him, and including a serious illness of his mother. And so he relies on this old man a lot as a mentor. So this old man becomes a mentor for the few months that he lives in the town with him. And... Uh, and so that's what the book is about. Uh, that is awesome. Now, Judge, um, you and my dad were very good friends. We were close friends. Um, do, do you can my? I wish my dad I could have interviewed him, but I couldn't. So, do you have anything that you can like sum up some any stories or anything you remember about my dad? Uh, well, keep it clean, Judge. No, <laughs> keep it clean. It's hard to when one talks about your dad, but uh, but. I, I consider your dad a very exceptional and and uh, individual. He really was one of a kind, and uh, uh, I Jim, had great, Jim Eichert. Yeah, I, yeah, Jim Eichert. I had a great deal of respect for Jim, your father, and you know that. And, and he, he was not, like he, ten years older. Yeah, he was a good ten ten years older than I was. He he was about my brother Raymond's age. Right. Uh, in my in my family, Julia was the oldest. She was the, my, one of my sisters. Uh, then Raymond, then came Jerry five years after Raymond, right? And then came me five years, and then Priscilla about two right. and a half years later. So I was five years younger than G my brother Jerry, the one who became governor, right. and uh, I was ten years younger than Raymond, right? Who was five years older than Jerry. Uh, but my dad but had that was about Raymond's age, and he had a similar. He had an electrical engineering background, like, yes. And so maybe you all kind of related in that, yes. And he had a lot of energy, your dad did. And uh, I admired him for that. And uh, I relied on him for a lot of advice, too. Although I did some legal work for him. Oh, yes. As did I, for his brother John, your uncle John. Right, yes. I did legal work for him and for Mr. Eichert, your grandfather. Yeah, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I did legal work for him. Uh, I recall uh, <laughs> that Jim and John, you know, they would not take care of things dealing with their father uh, that he needed. And I remember that that uh, your grandfather owned a liquor license in a bar in Anthony, New Mexico. And uh, he wanted uh, to sell that license or, or lease it to somebody else at the time and wanted to have to enter into a lease agreement to get that license uh, to this other person. And uh, John would... Your your grandfather would come into Eichert Furniture, his place of business, right? And 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 tell him I, I need to see an attorney. He says I get I get one for you, Dad. I get one. Well, it never happened. Finally, Jerry Gibson, who used to work for for John Eichert, Jerry Gibson got Mr. Eichert and said, "Look, let me take you to an attorney." And he shows up in my office and said, "He needs a contract, Rudy. Would you help him?" And I did. 
Oh, and that was the first. Uh, oh, that's how the you first client. The first client I had was your grandfather. And oh, was, wow! I, I did mean, not... Not, not the first client I had, but first client in your family was. That, your I did not know that. And that's how it turned out that I represented uh, John and Jim, and then of course they became uh, instrumental with opening the Citizens Bank. I eventually became attorney for the Citizens Bank, mostly because of, at that time, John was not on the board, but Jim was your yeah. dad, and he's the one that was instrumental in getting getting me on the board. Because well, he had a lot of faith in me, and I appreciated that. Well, I remember seeing you all together, and I mean, the connection and the uh, the connection you all had was just we, amazing. We, we had lunch together, and, and the board as a group. He admired you, Judge, let me tell you. I mean, we'd walk in, if we'd see you at a restaurant, he'd say, oh my gosh, there's Rudy Apodaca, and he'd go on and on. He says, do you all realize he's not only a lawyer, but he has a mathematics degree? And he was well, so impressed yeah, with well, you, Well, I know he. I know he got impressed with all that. Uh, I, he used to, he used to embarrass me when, uh, <laughs> no, because of that. And, and he, the, the one thing, I'm going to say this. I, I never tell people this, but I became a member of Mensa uh, back in, in. Tell people what in, that means. Well, no, Mensa. It's the highest two percent percentile intelligent people in in the, in the world, two the highest two percent. But then I tell my fellow Mensons, I said, well, you know, my IQ is such that I'm in the one percent, so I'm I'm smarter than half of the Menson members. <laughs> so I like to tell that joke. It's not a joke, but it's a, but but anyway, what I was going to say about your dad is, he found out I was a member of Mensa, and he shot it to the board, and he couldn't. So he says, I've never known a person that Mensa, you know. And and, and uh, so that died down after a while, you know. But uh, but He used that, to give you a hard time you, when about you said, that. When you said that he used to say the fact that it was a major in mathematics and the fact... No, but he really was. Truly, he admired yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, I know he did. I appreciated that very much. And I had a real good uh, visit with your dad before he died when we knew that oh, he had that's... cancer. And his, I went to his home and we had a visit. Thank he you. knew, he knew so it was much. probably the last time that I would see him. But that's what I mean about life, that it's important to remember the people that are good people in your life. Yes. And your dad was one of them. And, you. and your mother. I mean, Gloria, oh, yes. I, I thank the world of Gloria. And thank, thank the Lord she's still with and us. And she's still with you. And that's, yes. a, that's amazing that she's still there. And uh, so I admired both your parents. And I knew her. She was the personality. <laughs> she was a good person. She was a very good person. And uh, I remember meeting her mother for the first time, who at that time I think was living in El Paso. Yes, Clara. But, but uh, yeah, Clara. Clara Geary. But uh, yes, uh, I have fond memories of those times. Yes. But anyway, uh, so I, I well, think we've, we I don't know. We've talked about well, the I, books. I, well, I want to know how do we find how do people buy the, buy these books? How do they get a hold of them? Well, uh, they're all available. All four books are available. Uh, in fact, also Kindle or Nookbook, in in at BarnesandNoble.com or in Amazon.com. Okay, they so can they, order them in any bookstore. They're can, on Amazon. Yeah, they're not. You don't find them in the bookshelf of every bookstore right. because they're not published by a, a, a so, well-known publisher. But uh, you know, they're not a bestseller. But people can actually buy them. They can call a bookstore and, and order it online or, or order it on the phone. So uh, I'm so going to just say the. Excuse me for interrupting, Judge. The Wax and Image Pursuit, a novel. Um, a rare thing. thing, 
and when the angels came. Those, all, those all, are the titles of four. Yes, all and, by Rudy Apodaca. And they can find all that information on my website, RudyApodaca.com. Yes. Or they can just go to Amazon.com and read about it. I, I'm very, excuse me, I'm very fortunate that several readers, uh, some who know me, and some who I asked, look, you like my, enjoy my book? Write a good comment, favorable comment on it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Right. And they did. So right. people can go there and see what other readers think about the books yes. and, and, and make up their own mind whether they want to buy it or not. But it is out on Kindle. A lot of people do like the Kindle. I myself like to read uh, and smell the, the, the smell of good a good real book yeah know? i i'm the same way but i do read i Kindle. have a hard time i've tried reading them on on a, like a on a iconic and it, it's just not the same i don't know why but, but that, that's not. really what i'm and, and actually at my age uh, i'm not doing much marketing so that i really appreciate the fact that when you asked me whether i would agree to be interviewed I said, well, if nothing else, I can promote my books. Oh, yes. There. And I know it's a real estate podcast. So um, the, the thing is, Judge, it's a real estate podcast, but we can take diversions. Well, I, I, think, uh, I think actually people that dabble in real estate and want to listen to your podcast for the most part for real estate information, uh, they, they need a broader right. uh, scope, a broader education than that. It, so it's not going to hurt them to learn. No, about, and you about, were a real estate broker about humanness and stuff like that. Yes, I was. Well, I, tell us I, just a little bit about that. Actually, uh, when I was in, in, in when I entered law practice, uh, a lot has changed in the legal field, and one of the things that changed specialization is something that was not existing back then. Right. Most attorneys were in general practice. They handled every conceivable. Well, even even when I did it. Even I did when, you started, when you started, it was just general practice. You handled uh, probate. You handled everything. Estate, criminal. Divorce, criminal. I did everything. Uh, personal injury cases, yes. things of that sort. In other words, you handled all kinds of things. But but the ugly head of, I would say ugly head, but specialization came aboard. So pe people, not, lawyers not specialized. Right. So people say, I, I'd like for you to do this real estate contract. They say, I don't handle real estate contracts. I handle just probate. Right. Or I just had oh, yeah, exactly. domestic relationship. <laughs> yeah. So that, that happens nowadays. But back back then, I was in general practice. Uh, but So I handled every conceivable kind of case. Right. You mentioned it, I handled it. Right. Workers' comp, criminal case, probate, uh, real estate contracts. Banking. Uh, banking, thing, commercial, all kinds of stuff. Personal injury, uh, divorce. Uh, so... Um, what happened is later on in my practice, when I was able to not have to take so many criminal cases, I started looking for possibly going into a different field. And I, I kind of got, got a little bogged down with, with law practice. It, uh, Which can happen. Got stressed Which out. Which can yes. happen. And I was looking for something else. And I said, well, maybe real estate development. Maybe I can become a real estate developer. So at that time, lawyers could become real estate brokers without having to go through the apprenticeship right. the first three, four years and become real estate brokers at the very beginning. They had to take the brokerage exam. Right. But they but and lawyers, pass it. And, and pass it, and <laughs> which I had to do. But I did I did take a, a, a real estate course and I was fortunate that I passed a real estate broker's exam. And so I became a broker. So I opened up a, a, a real estate office. So, and that was existing for about two and a half years. And 
And I believe like, your wife Nancy helped and you. Nancy, with. Nancy was my office manager, and she also became a salesperson. Who's a wonderful person. Uh, yes, Nancy. I think is, she's a great gal. Yes. Anyway, the point to get back to answer your question, uh, that was my intent to become a real estate developer. So I got into real estate. Uh, so I handled some real estate contracts, and uh, we listed some homes. And I had, uh, in addition to Nancy, I had about four other salespeople. Okay. But what happened in the interim during that time? Uh, a fellow law, a, a, a ex-neighbor of mine, Bill Bivens, and also a lawyer in Las Cruces, became a member of the Court of Appeals. Right. And he called me and said, you know, there's an opening that's coming aboard. I'd like for you to consider going for it. I think you'd become a, you'd be, be an excellent Court of Appeals judge. I said, well, I've never aspired to be a, a, a judge. I've helped others become judges. But, uh, but I don't know, Bill. But, well, think about it. So I started thinking about it. And it, I ended up running for that position. I had a, you're talking about Las Cruces being unknown to people up north. Right. I had to run against two Albuquerque attorneys. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, in the Democratic, uh, right. nomin the Democratic primary. And uh, one of them, uh, the other fellow, uh, filed suit against him, said he didn't get enough signatures to get on the ballot. And he succeeded, so the other guy bowed out. When he bowed out, uh, I became first on the ballot. Oh. And the Albuquerque attorney was second. So Wait, I, is it I, because your last name starts with an A? No, or no, what? no. It's because uh, we drew for positions. Oh, I think. And okay. there were first, second, and third positions. Okay. <laughs> and the other Albuquerque attorney was third in, in the position, and I was second. When he bumped out that guy on the first position, I became the first one on the ballot. <laughs> Uh, they changed the they changed the law later where they they rotated the people on top of the ballot. Oh, okay. But I was fortunate I was top on the ballot, so I had that advantage over my opponent from Albuquerque. Uh, well, I ended up getting fifty five percent of the vote in the general in the uh, primary. So uh, now that's ten percent spread, fifty five to forty five percent. That's a big win. Oh, yeah. That's a big win. That's amazing, especially in a judicial race. So, and then I didn't have a Republican opponent in the general. Okay. Uh, well, I did, but he was a write-in ballot, a oh, write-in write candidate. But, uh, so I was on the court, uh, well, I, it was an eight-year term at the time, and so I got on board, and of course, uh, uh, they changed the law, so I, uh, I didn't have to run for election. I was just on the ballot, and they had to say yes or no. They agreed with keeping me on, and so I was retained. So I was on the court for almost 14 years. And after that, I, as you mentioned, I did mediation arbitration work. So right. that's a real, that's how I became a real estate broker. But the, the end of it was because I became a judge. <laughs> okay. Well, that's quite a diversion. Judge, thank you very much for this interview. How thank long you. Have you been, how long have you been talking to me? Anyway? Oh, for, it's been a little bit. But, um, and thank you for the introduction to your books, Judge. And, um, and your life and your philosophy a little I hope bit. It's, I hope it's been interesting. Oh, I hope, it has I hope, been. I hope we haven't bored your viewers. But, yes, uh, yes. Well, thank you very much, Judge. Thank you, Robert, for oh, having me. I okay. really appreciate it. And thanks it. for all you've done for myself and my family. Too. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you, too. Thank you.